Um, so very good morning to you all. Next week we're going to have a kind of uh, a half-term break in our studies on Hebrews. And some of you probably feel it's about time. We could do with one. But let me reassure you, if that's you, that the hard part is done. The theological foundation that we needed has been laid in the first two talks, and that's going to enable us to build with relative ease. Like, digging the foundation is the most back-breaking, uh, apparently rewardless bit. We kind of did that in my first two talks. So, uh, but that bit is over. It should go quite easily from now on. Following Dr. Moffat's excellent overview, our first talk covered the heavenly picture. Jesus as fully God, the Son of God, now seated at God's right hand. Then the following week in chapter 2 and a little way into chapter 3, we saw the earthly picture, Jesus as fully human, and therefore fully representative of humanity. He's our great high priest who makes us right with God, and also who fully understands our suffering and our temptations. Then last week, Jesse took us through chapter 3, uh, 7 to 4.13, a passage in which the principal thought was of ourselves as participants in the Exodus experience, the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. And like Israel of old, we've not been saved out of slavery straight into the promised land. We've been saved into the now and not yet, the wilderness experience of what the writer of the Hebrews calls these last days, before the great and fateful day of the Lord comes. And this transitional state is supposed to lead us into the promised land of heaven. But like Israel, it's an opportunity. We can still blow it unless we respond with faith to the many challenges we can expect to meet along the way. The watchword so far has been hold fast, Don't drift. And as we shall see, that is not something that's about to change. The boat we're traveling in, to use that metaphor, is in a fast-flowing river. And if we don't keep rowing steadily, we're going to end up somewhere we didn't want to go. We've escaped from slavery and certain destruction, but we're still in danger if, like the children of Israel, in Dr. Moffat's memorable phrase, we say no when God says go, or go when God says no. If we do, then like them, we might end up walking around in circles until the last one of us drops dead in the desert. And nobody wants that. David Pawson famously pointed out many years ago that possibly the greatest tragedy in the whole of the Old Testament is outlined in Deuteronomy 1, verses 1 to 3, the point where Israel is finally, at last, on the verge of entering the Promised Land. And here's the crucial phrase. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea. And it came to pass in the 40th year. Unless we want an 11-day journey to take us 40 years, then we have to pay attention to God's leading. That is what the author of Hebrews means when he says, let us strive to enter that rest. So let's now read together Hebrews 4.14, and we're going to go right through to chapter 16. Chapter 16? uh, Right through chapter (laughs) 6. Yeah. I'm going to write a few more chapters as we go on. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, uh, There is forgiveness for uh, writing. Uh, Yeah, okay. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Anyone remember where that saying comes from? Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, you sitting comfortably, then I'll begin. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, for four, verse 14. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we've got a great deal to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and instruction about washing the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance? Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire that each one of you should show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. 
For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, we can breathe again now. If you want a title for this talk, let's call it Holding On and Pressing On, because those are the principal themes of this lengthy passage. For today's purposes, I want us to examine it in four sections, which I've called the point, the priest, the problem, and the promise. As is so often the case, this is not the only way of reading this passage, but that's the way I think the Lord wants us to read it today. So first of all, the point. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And I've called this short section the point because these three verses contain what I believe is the author's actual instruction to us in this passage. That's the what. The rest is more about uh, the how and the why. In the light of everything that's gone before in this letter... And in light of the danger that we might still fail to reach the promised land, he now tells us how we should respond to our situation in these last days. We're not to slip back into anything less than a close adherence to Jesus, who is our high priest. The point of the high priest is that in Judaism, once a year only, the high priest alone would perform a single all-important ritual. Without this day of atonement, every other sacrifice and act of worship that followed would be invalid. On that day, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the temple where no one else was allowed to go ever, with incense and blood of various sacrifices. And if you want the detail on that, it's all to be found in Leviticus 16. For our purposes today, it probably suffices to point out that this atonement ritual concentrated strongly on what was called the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right there in the Holy of Holies, where God chose to dwell, unapproachable for the rest of the year. So when verse 14 identifies Jesus as our high priest, it is making a very specific point. Nothing we do can be pleasing to God without the great one-off sacrifice of Jesus, who not only shed his blood for us, but has now passed through the heavens, i.e. has reached the highest point in heaven, the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. And if our high priest has gone there, and is still there, seated at God's right hand, as we've read, it can only be because he is eternally offering, or you may prefer to think, has eternally offered the spiritual blood and incense which sanctifies everything else we can offer to God, including our poor little lives. 
So, still verse, still verse 14, let us hold fast to our confession. And that phrase probably means two things. It means, let us cling on to the truths which we professed our belief in the day we came to Christ. And secondly, let's carry on faithfully declaring those truths. And verse 15, as we do so, let's remember the closeness and companionship of our Savior. Because he's not some distant, otherworldly role model or hero. He has walked the very path we tread, sharing our flesh and blood. Suffering every bit as much as we ever will and more. And tempted in exactly the same ways we are, yet without sin. Now that's something to pause on. Dare we believe that Jesus was really tempted in exactly the same way that I and you and you and you and you and you and you are all tempted? Well, the Bible says he was. I think if we really believed that, we would never hide from God when we are tempted. We'd run to him for help. And that's exactly what verse 16 says we must do. The throne of grace... The mercy seat has been rendered eternally effective for us by the sacrifice of our great high priest, Jesus. So we can approach it with confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. And we approach it not only for mercy, which refers to when we have sinned, but vitally also for grace to help us in time of need, i.e. when we are tempted to sin. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Personally, I find that easier to say than actually to do. Hard to live out. I tend to feel so guilty about the fact that I'm tempted at all, which is really a sort of arrogance-shame nexus, I suppose. I feel so guilty about it that I don't feel I can go to God. I feel I have to hide from him, a bit like Adam and Eve in the garden, before I've even sinned. Well, the great pastoral truth of Hebrews 4.15 is that temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted exactly like us, but was without sin. So if the perfectly holy Jesus was tempted in the same ways that we are, then temptation isn't sin, it's just the human condition in our wilderness wanderings in these last days. One of the devotional aids I use contains a verse of the week and a verse of the day. It's one of those funny little things. Yesterday's were Psalm 25, 14 to 20, and Isaiah 41, 10. And here are just two verses out of that psalm. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. O oh, guard and deliver my soul. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. And then here's the Isaiah one. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, if I hadn't been already meditating on Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, then frankly, I think I might have missed the point. Those passages both refer to conflict with unspecified enemies. And when you read those verses, that, that kind of passage, it's all too easy to skim over it, thinking, well, it doesn't apply to me, I haven't got any enemies. But if we think that, St. Paul brings us a powerful wake-up call in Ephesians 6.12. Our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual armies of wickedness in the heavenly places. Stand, therefore. Or he might have said, hold fast. We are surrounded by enemies every day of our wilderness wanderings in these last days. Spiritual enemies who want us to fall away from the living God. They would try and persuade us that only really terrible people ever get tempted. So we can't possibly go to God for help. And once we see this spiritual warfare for what it is, then passages like those two, and like the one that Imogen read to us earlier on, snap into sharp focus. The battle of temptation is not one we have to fight alone. In fact, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say we're doomed to failure if we try and fight them on our own. If we could only learn to run to the throne of grace when we're tempted, instead of away from it, then perhaps we begin to experience the kind of victory that Jesus won many times a day, every day of his earthly life. Verse 16 says, we go boldly to the throne of grace. And if you're a Trekkie, please feel free to boldly go. But we go there not just for mercy when we have sinned, We go there also equally boldly for grace to help us in time of need. And I'm sure that phrase means many, many things. But in the context of verse 15, one thing it surely must mean is for grace to help us when we are being tempted. The biggest lie that these enemies of your soul will try and sell you is exactly the same one that the devil first told back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. It is a grotesque slander on the God who, who is love, as 1 John 4, 8 tells us. This great lie is that God is an angry, irrational rule maker, not a loving, merciful father. This is the lie that stands at the back of our every impulse to flee from the throne of grace as if it was for us a judgment seat, not a mercy seat. For what unworthy soul would ever run towards an angry, irrational rule maker? But what unworthy soul like us would ever run from a loving, merciful father? These three verses are, I believe, the point of all that follows. We're going to return to the same theme at the end of the passage. In the frequently used sandwich structure of scriptural teaching, That's a strong indicator of what is the main point. In the meantime, our writer reinforces the meat in the sandwich and explains this powerful message with reference to the priest, the problem, and the promise. Now that we've got the point, we can race through this pretty quickly. Part two, the priest, chapter five, verses one to eight, now begins a comparison between the traditional Jewish high priests and Jesus, the fulfillment of them all, the great high priest. Even the former, verses 1 to 3, can sympathize with the sins of the people because he's a sinner as well. But in verse 3, there's a divergence between the earthly priest and the heavenly. Jesus didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because there weren't any. This great eternal day of atonement sacrifice was just for us. Now that's something that never happened before. It's as if this sacrifice and the priest offering it was so great, so wonderful, so pure, so perfect, that they completely shattered the whole system of sacrifices forever. 
Perhaps that is what Jesus meant when dying on the cross, John 19.30, he cried out, it is finished. Matthew 27.51 records that at that very moment, the curtain of the temple, the massively thick embroidered barrier between the rest of the temple and the Holy of Holies ripped down the middle from top to bottom. In that moment, the most holy place and the mercy seat of God himself became accessible to all. Now that is surely a heavenly matter, not an earthly one. Yet verses 4 to 8 stress that even Jesus, this great high priest, humbled himself to share our human condition. He lowered himself to a status where he needed God's appointment, verses 4 to 6, where he prayed to God, sometimes in agony, verse 7, where he suffered and learned obedience, uh, verse 8, all like us. And all of that, even though, as chapter 1 showed us so clearly, he is the creator and sustainer of the entire cosmos. So what? So what should we expect? And how do you think we should behave in the wilderness wanderings of these last days. It's important to note verse 9 doesn't imply that Jesus was flawed as we are. And verse 8 doesn't mean he started out disobedient. They simply mean that being God, obedience wasn't in Jesus' experience until he deliberately became a man. And being a man, until he died and rose and ascended, he hadn't yet fulfilled his role, but he has now. Thus, and only thus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, Tobes Old Bean, I hear you all ask, who's this guy Melchizedek and what's that all about? Well, Come back in a fortnight's time, because I ain't going to tell you. <laughs> Point three, the problem, verses 5, 11 to 6, 10. In a nutshell, well, you will find out in a fortnight, I promise. In a nutshell, it seems to me what concerns the author here is that his readers might have reverted to such a regressive state in their faith that they cannot possibly hear what he has to say. So he's trying to get their attention. He's trying to prod and provoke them into readiness to move on. The trouble is, verse 11, they become dull of hearing. An idea very much akin to the hardness of heart we were reading about last week. Notice that they've become it. They weren't always that way. And that means there's a danger that we could become hard of hearing as well. I don't want to pick over the specific doctrines listed in verses 1 and 2 any more than the author does. Let's simply notice what has happened, what should have happened, and the conclusion he reaches about it all. These guys should by now have had the depth of understanding and maturity and experience to be teachers of the faith, yet they've become spiritual babies, forever picking over the basics rather than pressing on, verse 1, to maturity. Have they really slipped so far, the author asks, that they need to be converted all over again? Well, he hopes not, verses 4 to 8, because it simply can't be done. Any such falling away would be final and catastrophic. Well, you might think that the subjects listed in 1 and 2 are anything but basic. But if so, I think we're looking at them in the wrong way. Because at the most straightforward level, they're all extremely simple. 
What the author wants is for them to go far beyond that level into a world of understanding where we have to rely on the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Yes, probably found at the throne of grace to help us understand. And I think verse 14 gives us a strong clue as to the true difference between the milk and the meat. And it seems to me that difference hinges on the single word practice. We can argue theology even on these Christian basics until we're blue in the face. And you don't have to look very far around the world to see that people do. We can read and even write libraries full of books on them. And the author of Hebrews would still call us spiritual babies. What causes us to grow in maturity is putting the word of God into practice. Remember what Jesus said about the person who built his house on the sand and the one who, to use gender non-specific language, built hers upon the rock. He heard the words of Jesus and the house he built, possibly his doctorate or his academic career as a theologian, fell flat when the rains came. She heard the words of Jesus and put them into practice, possibly only in very simple ways, but her house stood when Hurricane Patricia hit. Now, of course, I've added my own hyperbolic uh, emphases there for effect, but I hope you can see the point I'm making. The meat in a sermon, John Wimber used to say, is on the street. What is the point of all our fine theology if our church isn't reaching out with the gospel to the lost, with healing to the sick, and with food to the hungry? As Oswald Chambers often pointed out, it's not our learning or our years that produce maturity. It is obedience. If we want our senses exercised to discern right from wrong, verse 14, then we better start practicing what we preach. Now, After this stinging rebuke, verses 9 and 10 go on to say in disarmingly tender terms, of course, beloved, not only I, but those with me, we don't really think you're in any such danger. But just notice before we move on his reasons for saying that. Verses 7 and 8 warn us what happens to unfruitful land. As always, God judges us not by our ideas, but by the fruit of our lives. So it's not what the Hebrews believe that gives the author confidence in them. Verse 10, it is their actions in service of the saints. The saints' concern might be the local church, or there might be other churches to whom they've sent money, ministers, or missions. The point is, God looks on such actions with favor, and they have done well. Lastly, the promise. Verses 11 to 20. Now, the first verse we read today encouraged us to hold fast. Now, two chapters later, in verse 11, we return to the very same thought. Notice the use of, of singular and plural language here. We are each one of us to show the same earnestness. And how will we know that if we don't share our lives honestly with each other? To have the full assurance of hope to the end. Verse 12, we're to break out of our dull-eared hard-heartedness, that sluggishness and slipping away, and imitate instead people like Abraham, verses 13 to 18. Now, the great thing about Abraham 
who's a bit of a hero of this author, as he comes back and back in, in Hebrews, is that he believed the promise of God, even though the circumstances were extremely uh, unpromising. When the promise was made that he and his wife would become ancestors of a great nation, he and Sarah were already past childbearing age. They then waited 25 years for their son to be born, and another 60 to see their first grandchild. That, as they say, is faith. The promise of God is, by definition, something we have to wait for. So verse 18, we who have fled into this wilderness for refuge from the power of sin and death should do what? We should hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So that's it for this week. The point is to approach the throne of grace boldly because of what Jesus has done. Our perfect high priest has blown away forever any need for us, however brilliant we might be, and some of us are, ever to try and earn anything from God. If there's a problem, it's getting stuck where we are. To avoid that, we simply need to press on and put into practice what we have learned of Christ. And the promise of God is unbreakable. It's a dead cert. You can take it to the bank. You can bet your life on it. And many of us here have. Will you join us? We have verse 19 in the words of that great hymn, an anchor that keeps the soul safe and secure when the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded sure and deep in the Saviour's love. Jesus, verse 20, is an anchor for us, fixed forever within the veil in the Holy of Holies, in God's presence before his throne of grace. That anchor will never slip or move. All we have to do in the days of these wilderness wanderings is to hold fast to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.